Thank you, Eric, and welcome. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at MetroLife Church. If you have your Bible with you, you can begin to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're beginning a new series today called Dear Church. It's on the two letters that we have in God's Word that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. It's a church that he planted. It's one that he had very near and dear to his heart. But if you will indulge me for just a moment, I'd like to kind of add a couple of things. Eric, I wouldn't normally do this publicly, but since you did it publicly, I'm going to respond in kind. Let me exhort you, listen to your wife. (laughs) I feel better. I hope you do too. Uh, We actually had some time with our community group leaders this last week, and it was was a wonderful time. It was a a raucous and hilarious time. We had some surprises for them, some ways to honor uh, our leaders, but uh, there was this just beautiful and sweet time at the close of our evening together where I asked what hopefully is becoming a familiar question to our community group leaders, and that is, What are you encouraged by in this last term? What are you seeing in the church? And then just for 15 minutes or so, just to hear back from them about you, about what God is doing in each one of you, what God is doing through you. And and there weren't names shared or anything like that. That's not what that time is about. But just to hear what it is that God is doing in and through his church was such an encouragement to all of us And I hope that that's an encouragement to you as well. But more than that, I am grateful for our community group leaders and how they extend care in in such practical ways that there would be no way for myself or any of the other leaders or pastors to be everywhere all the time, and yet they extend such practical care. So I am so grateful for our community group leaders. I wanted to let you know that Danny is in Titusville today. Uh, For those of you who are new to us, we are a part of a partnership of churches. We believe that healthy leaders lead healthier churches. And so we uh, we partner with one another to, to strengthen and encourage one another through grace partnership. And one of our sister churches is there in Titusville. Danny is there today because they are celebrating... Uh, the installation of Christian Moscoso as an elder at Trinity Community Church. And so those that may not know, Christian um, abandoned us about a year ago when, uh, no, he didn't abandon us. Uh, we sent him, we shooed him along in God's good graces. Uh, but Danny's actually going to preach next Sunday here at Metro Life Church. He's our founding elder. And then Shane is going to preach the following week on Mother's Day Uh, Because somehow it just falls that way for him every year. I think it's the way that we get one other message out of him before summer breaks loose in his schedule. Uh, So he's going to be preaching on Mother's Day. My family will be here both weeks, but that just gives an opportunity for me to focus on a few other things. Lastly, uh, and this is going to be one for those that have been around for a while, this Sunday is Rob and Lynette Swanson's last Sunday with us. Now, I have not had a chance to see them this morning. yeah, thank you for all of the, there we go. Rob, Lynette, thank you for your investment in our culture as a church. Um, I'm going to share a personal story, if that's okay. Uh, it's not like you can say no. Um, I mean, you could, I'm going to do it anyway. Rob had probably one of the most practical, one of the most practical discipleship moments that I've ever witnessed. And Rob, uh, you may have been here last Good Friday a year ago when we did the kind of narrative of the 
biblical storyline, the, the narrative arc of Scripture. And Rob helped us put that together. So he's directed a number of plays. He's written some uh, specifically for us as a church. Uh, I had the privilege of being in one of those. And he just had one of the most practical discipleship moments. And so, Rob, I just want to thank you for being a man that not only had the gifts, but used them in just such a practical way for God's glory in the church. And Lynette, I, I just remember you being here for so many different weddings and using your artistic ability for how many runners did you create for brides to, to go and be married. So thank you just for that practical investment in our church. Uh, and, and be blessed in going and moving to Colorado. Uh, may God bless you with your family and all the changes that introduces to that. Um, Lynette, I know this means the beginning of a, a new career for you. Uh, so we just want you to know we are so grateful for you and be blessed in your going out. All right. I'm going to stop there because there are some funny stories that I want to share too. But uh, I hear you laughing, Rob, and I'm going to miss that laugh. All right. First Corinthians. I'm curious. Let me just ask a question as we begin our time together. Why do you come to church? I know it's not the preaching. Why do you come to church? Maybe the worship... Maybe Ed's blueberry lemon cupcakes. Can we at least call them muffins so I don't feel bad having them for breakfast? Maybe it's the fellowship. Maybe it's to use your gifts. I mean, why is it that you come to church? What is it that church does for you? I definitely know it's not that, but that's encouraging. You know, a, a biblical answer to this doesn't actually take us the direction of answering for ourselves in any way. We talked about this a little bit over Easter time. Uh, a biblical answer would really ask the question in a different way. What does the gathered church do for God? And you may think, okay, hang on a second. You sound like you're, you're saying this is works-based. No, what I'm saying is there is something about the gathered church that brings glory to God. And, and that gathering can take on so many different expressions. I mean, we've already heard a couple this morning through Alive, our student ministry, through community groups, that, that way that we practically live out the truths of the gospel throughout the rest of the week. I mean, we are addressed through Scripture that the gathered church brings glory to God. You being here this morning brings glory to God. If you've ever wondered, what is my purpose in life? Your purpose in life is to bring glory to God. So one of the ways that we do that is to gather together on Sunday mornings. One of the ways that we do that is to gather together in men's and women's ministries, in community group, in, in alive, in, in the various ways that God has given us the privilege to kind of create different contexts in this local church to gather together. I mean, we're certainly addressed throughout Scripture about gathering together. But I'm not the starting point, and you're not the starting point. God's glory is the starting point. And, and there's, a, there's a tone and a message in 1 Corinthians that speaks to the gathered church. But here's what I want us to, to not lose sight of when we're thinking about the gathered church. That doesn't give us the ability to kind of slip back in our part. The gathered church is made up of you and me together. So when, when 1 Corinthians is addressing the entire church gathered together, it's addressing each one of us individually. Now 2 Corinthians gets a little bit more explicit and specific when it starts to speak to the individual believer, but I think it's important for us at the outset to understand 
that 1 Corinthians is speaking to the church in this local context, around the world, but more importantly to you and to me this morning. The gathered church. Why? For God's glory. See, my desire would be for us to kind of turn the corner, if this is anywhere in our hearts, that we would turn the corner from an involvement in the church that is is more self-centered to this kind of full-blown, God-centered life together. It's what he calls us to. It's, It's for his purposes. He gives us to one another to grow in unity and grow in purity in the local church. Actually, I want us to to have a vision that the church would be just this one other item on the list of private virtues that we're trying to cultivate in our own efforts. That the church wouldn't just be another tick on the to-do list. That way you could kind of void out or maybe avoid private vices where we're trying to make this about offsetting who we've been the rest of the week. Imagine with me a church that in coming together is a manifestation of the living God in this world. That's what we're called to be. We're called to be a manifestation of the living God in this world. God calls us into the church as a way of living with one another. And when we really get this, when this sinks in in a very practical way, the way that we view life begins to change radically. Now, in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes to a church that, like many still today, including this one, is deeply flawed but greatly loved. I hope you even hear that this morning through Shane and through Eric and what they've been bringing to us this morning. And he writes to them because he loves them and they're dear to his heart. We're going to see what, what, that, what that springs forth from. It's not just the gospel. Paul was very practically involved in planting this church. But he writes them because what we're going to see along the way throughout this book is indicators that this is a back and forth correspondence between Paul and the church. But this, Paul, this church is dear to Paul's heart. Why is it so dear to Paul's heart? Well, first and foremost, it's dear to the heart of God. You are dear to the heart of God. I want you to hear that very plainly this morning. He created you because he loves you. You are dear to the heart of God. But there's a a clear logic through the letter that's going to be repeated over and over again. There's a logic and a pattern, so let's just take a moment to consider those. There's a call to repentance. There's a call to holy living. There's a call to self-sacrificial love that we are, as believers, called to characterize in Christ. And and we realize that only when we recognize that the gospel is the source of supply for that. Not our own efforts, not our own personality. There's nothing about our Enneagram or our Myers-Briggs that's going to be able to sustain that within the church. The gospel is the source of of these wonderful provisions that God's given to the church. These are the gifts of grace. These are the provisions of the gifts of grace. The charismata. As I said a couple of weeks ago, we are a charismatic church because we believe that the gifts of grace are still for today in the church. What are these gifts of grace? They are the unmerited favor of God poured out on us as individuals. It's wonderful. But the pattern that we're going to see throughout the letter 
is repeated over and over again, and you may even begin to recognize it in our passage today. I realize I haven't read any of it yet, but I want to lay the kind of groundwork for us. Paul's going to identify a question or he's going to identify an issue that's being raised that he kind of wants to bring forth to the church. He's going to secondly consider how the gospel applies to it and then lastly realize how the resurrected Savior Savior enables our response in different thinking. So he's going to identify, he's going to consider how the gospel applies to different topics and he's going to realize how it is that the resurrected Savior enables our response in different thinking. So this is the world that we dive into, and we meet a church, a church in Corinth that Paul himself planted and spent a year and a half of his life building up. And so can we read the first three verses of 1 Corinthians 1 together? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus, and our brother Sosthenes, to the church of God that is in Corinth To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul begins by affirming this church's calling. Now, if you or I had written 1 Corinthians, it might have been quite a bit shorter church in Corinth, we're going to discover rather quickly, is a mess. Just a terrible mess. It gives us a host of examples throughout. There's 16 verses in this first letter. There's, excuse me, 16 chapters. There's squabbling, there's incest, there's sleeping with prostitutes, there's idolatry, there's drunkenness during communion. Drunkenness during communion. If that happens to you today, based on one of these, please see us afterwards. Their worship services were chaotic. They denied the future resurrection. And and who knows what it was that Paul wasn't actually even capturing for us here in this correspondence with the church. Now, I do want to give you a warning the week after Mother's Day. uh, It will be kind of rated PG-13. Our desire is not to to highlight or not to uh, talk about things that aren't included in God's Word. We work very hard not to be crass. Uh, when it comes to the subject of sex, but this letter does address it fairly specifically. And so we want to make sure that parents are prepared for that. Uh, We'll actually work to have something that day uh, that your children can go to if you're not yet at a place where you've had further discussion on that. But you can probably already hear, just from this opening part, there's a lot going on here that needs to be addressed. But you might just wonder, why doesn't Paul just write a very brief note Maybe a text or a tweet to the church at Corinth. Stop it. Repent, apologize to one another, change, and maybe I'll talk to you again. No, no, Paul actually does something quite different, doesn't he? Even from the three verses that we just read, you hear it in his tone. He wants to win them over. He desires for the believers not just to change their actions, but to understand why it is that they should do so. And he has this language that is just so tender, and it displays his affection for them. Now, the, the letter bookends on sections on the cross in chapter 1, which we, we're kind of in the midst of today, and again in chapter 15. And it shows that for Paul, the gospel really is the beginning and the end of the Christian life. 
It takes over every aspect of the Christian life. And you may wonder, well, how, it is, how is it that we know that he planted this church? How is it that we know that he's the one that spent a year and a half of his life? Well, if, if you can, Acts 18 is actually where it's captured for us. We, we talk a lot here about how Scripture informs and interprets Scripture. Scripture in, uh, it interprets itself. It is enough. Everything that is necessary for the Christian life is captured for us in God's Word. And this is where we see some of those connections being made. Acts chapter 18, it starts this. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Verse 3. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. Verse 4. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. Continuing in verse 5, when Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that Christ was Jesus. If we skip down to verse 9, and the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent. Verse 11, and he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So we're not just looking at something that I'm saying he, he invested a year and a half of his life. God's word actually informs us that there is a connection to what is happening in the establishment of the church in the book of Acts. Now you may wonder, I noticed that you, we talk about Sosthenes in this, in this passage. It's a name that actually means safe and strength. And, and he's included in the greeting in 1 Corinthians. So is, is that the same Sosthenes that's actually referenced at the end of Acts 18? Well, maybe. It's not clear. One thing is clear in Acts 18, Sosthenes is not a believer in that particular chapter. We're not given a lot of detail about any conversion story. Uh, But more than that, it was not uncommon in that day for Paul to make use of a scribe. And so that may have just been simply where Paul is acknowledging, I have a scribe who is helping me with this correspondence. So we don't see him necessarily as a joint author we actually just would acknowledge that Paul is the author of this book. Now, church in Corinth is made up of a specific type of person. It's, it's a people who want to grow and mature spiritually. The church is made up of people who want to mature spiritually. Some of them are going to seek uh, to, to display maturity through these displays of wisdom and eloquence. Some of them are going to uh, have this kind of break of, of everything that they were a part of in their pre-Christian lives, and so they begin to create rules and regulations for the Christian faith that the Christian faith does not actually include. Some of them are going to say, listen, I've been set free, and so in my freedom, I'm going to indulge in a little bit of everything. And then others are just looking for ever-increasing and ecstatic experience. So they're they're looking for ways to display spiritual maturity. Some of them are doing it through flaunting their wealth in immodest ways. Others are doing that through shrinking back and trying to have this pious life. And so you can imagine the bandwidth of people that are represented in this church, some problems are bound to begin to take place. Paul reminds us that the gospel is not this. I am wise, I am pure, I am free. No, the gospel is Jesus Christ and him crucified. I I am weak. I need a savior. And he's calling the church to remember that and that that would inform how it is that they're gathered together. 
Now, Paul writes this book, 1 Corinthians, from the city of Ephesus. He's in the Roman province of Asia. So it's been sometime near the end of his three-year ministry in Ephesus. And, and just to get an idea of the location, we have a graphic for us here. Corinth sits on the isthmus connecting the Greek mainland with the uh, Peloponnesian Peninsula. That is easy to say. It's, it's this really crossroads of, of traffic between the sea and the Aegean region and the western Mediterranean. You can see that it's kind of this melting pot of all these types of cultures coming together. Many today might use a phrase like it was a very cosmopolitan city. It had a lot of different, not just races, but it had a lot of different religions and, and different trade groups that were a part of it. So it was a thriving city economically, but there was a little bit of everything for everyone. You, you had a lot of choices when it came to what you were going to indulge in in the city of Corinth. It was a Roman colony, so Roman law and customs were very important, particularly among those who were in the upper classes. But many gods and many lords found a home in Corinth. Now you may wonder, why is it that at the end of this passage in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 1-2, it says, both their Lord and ours. This phrase is actually saying that there was, there was a worship of the gods, and it was not uncommon for uh, some of the leaders to actually take on the idea of being a Lord. And so they would take on a role that, that Paul is trying to at least acknowledge. We understand that that's what's going on there. We understand that culturally that's something that's happening there. But the worship of these gods was really fully integrated in governmental affairs, civic festival, trade guilds, social groups. It, it was just walking alongside everyday life in general. So we say that the church was a mess there. We're not saying that as some kind of like heavy-handed, looking down on them, pointing the finger in accusation. We just are recognizing this was quite a melting pot of a culture. Corinth was, interestingly enough, it was a travel destination for professional speakers, ancient TED Talks, if you would. They were going to charge a fee for attendance at, at entertaining rhetorical displays, and, and they would actually advise people on how it was that they could advance socially, how it was that they could advance in their workplace. But in the midst of that kind of cultural melting pot, what does, what does Paul say to the church? He says, you are called. I don't know if you recognized it when we were reading these first few verses. He actually says it twice in the, in the three verses that we've already read, and he'll say it again at the end of verse 9. Called. We are called. In verse 1, he, he references it as an individual calling. He's speaking of himself. I am called to be an apostle. In verse 2, he's talking about a gathering of the called. He's talking about the corporate church gathered together. These saints that come together called to be saints, called to be set apart from the world. And in verse 9, he's going to speak kind of at both the corporate and individual level. It's the same word in the Greek, but it has kind of this bandwidth of meaning. And, and can I just say this today? Perhaps you wrestle with things like, what is my calling in life? Can I just say, I think there are times that we over and underemphasize that. We do both. Somehow we do both. If you're here today and you are in Jesus Christ, you are called. He called your name. You're called. Done. 
Take the pressure off. I'm not saying be lazy about the things that God calls you to in your Christian walk, but I am saying let's be careful to wonder, like, what am I called to in this kind of hand-wringing way that kind of paralyzes people at times? If you're here today and you are in Jesus Christ, you are called. That is wonderful news for all of us. It it, it takes a weight off for us to try to identify something in our own lives, and at the same time, it propels us forward to see, so how is it that you want me to be used for your glory? That's how we can at times over and underemphasize. I mean, this word really basically just means this. It's a word over someone. It's to someone. It's a word that's been amplified. For many of us, it's, it's been the invitation to respond to the gospel. That's how you've been called at the most basic level. But a wonderful truth is what we see throughout Scripture. And this is where I want us to not, not try to find some kind of middle ground, but I want to, one, kind of stir people up that may be just sitting back and saying, well, isn't that enough? I want to help rein in people where, like, you get to this place where it's almost debilitating to think about what is my call? What we see throughout Scripture is this. When God calls, He also provides the strength. It's very simple. God's strength always accompanies His calling. And that's good news for us today. You you may not realize it, but what something is happening as I'm speaking to you today, there is amplification of my voice that is happening. There's several thousand watts behind it. I'm sorry for that. There's, even if you're online and, and watching this at, in your home, there's amplification not only of what's happening with my voice here, but also in the television set. And there are some effects that are being put in to place. So my voice is actually much higher than this. No, I'm teasing. It's not like that. There's actually an effect. being. It's called dynamic audio compression. Dynamic audio compression. And basically what it does is it, it takes an audio signal. Many of us are familiar with waveform. And basically it does this. If there's very quiet tones, it brings them up. It brings them up to some kind of normative level. If there are very loud tones, it, it reins them in. It reins them in so that a dynamic range, some of our instrumentation uses this, especially on the, the drum kit, maybe on the bass guitar. Some of our vocals use this. And what does it do? It kind of normalizes the audio. But it does so by bringing some of the quiet to a bit louder and by reining in some of the louder dynamics so that they are in line. That's what Paul's doing in writing to the church in Corinth. Just think about it for a moment. He's he's kind of compressing the spiritual signal of the church when it comes to what maturity looks like. So how does this apply to us today? It's certainly not an accusation to any individual here, but I believe it resides in the purpose of this book. For some in the church, Paul writes in order to stir us up where we've settled in and gotten quiet. He's raising the level. The truths of the gospel, the gifts of the Spirit, the purpose of the church have become quiet in our lives. And God wants to raise their level in your life. For others in the church, experience may be what rules the day. 
you're currently having a time with the Lord and, and, you're, and you're zealous that others experience the same thing. But in the midst of that, the nature of your relationship, feelings, actions, it's really taken over the broader call to serve one another and love. And so God wants to kind of rein that in. Why? So that the church displays it's the manifestation of His glory in the world today. God is going to use these, these verses to bring us together as a church for unity and for purity. Notice that Paul doesn't take this stop it approach like I said I would do in a, a text or a tweet to the church, right? He doesn't tell them to stop it. He doesn't shut things down. He doesn't say that there aren't areas of the life that the gospel doesn't apply to. So, you know, you ask about this, but really the gospel has no place there. So I'm not going to address that. No, the gospel has effect everywhere, not just in our homes, but in our life in the public square as well. And there's correction where needed, and there's clarity where needed. But what's the goal? What's the goal for Paul in trying to stir some up and to rein others in? In writing to the church in Corinth, Paul wants to bring clarity to the purpose of the church. And he does this by highlighting the need for unity and purity in the church. Now, you may just think, well, okay, we talk about the church, we talk about the church, but the church is not just another gathering or assembly. The word that is used there in the Greek, ekklesia, is actually one that is simply this. It's a voluntary assembly. You can apply this to a lot of different groups. Many of the groups that were in Corinth were even religious in nature. So you may think, well, what's so special about the church when we talk about it in that way where we kind of use this language that seems like we're setting it apart for other things because the church of Jesus Christ is not just another gathering or assembly. There's actually something very specific about it. When the government looked at the church in Corinth, nobody would have thought anything was different about it. But Paul recognizes something's off about it because their view of the church had become something that it was just another one of the gatherings and assemblies. We actually can see this to a degree happening in our world today. There's a song by a country artist named Maren Morris. It's called My Church. The song, My Church, tells the tale of a woman who figuratively uses this word church in describing the quote-unquote sanctuary that she feels in her car every time she plays music on the highway radio as she drives. What about the band Hosier when they sing the song, Take Me to Church? This song's about asserting yourself and reclaiming your humanity through an act of love. There seems like something off in how that's even said. It's the band's own description of the song. It's asserting yourself and reclaiming your humanity through an act of love. And what it does is it presents a metaphor for the lover of the singer of the song. The word church may also be used in other religious communities. For non-Christian communities, the term is somewhat considered archaic or offensive, but I know that there are even genres of music that call their, their concerts church. In Corinth, there were pagan, quote-unquote, churches. There were pagan assemblies that would gather together. So Paul takes care to define what he means in verse 2 when he uses the word church. Let's look at it together again. To the church of God that is in Corinth. To those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. So we've taken a little bit of 
this passage already. But he says something about the gathered church, the assembly of people, the people that are sitting around you right now. What does he say about them? He says that they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. Sanctified in Christ Jesus. I have a friend in the church that can tell when Stephanie and I have had an argument on Sunday mornings because of how we stand next to each other in church. That doesn't sound very sanctified, does it? What, what does he mean when he says sanctified? What does he mean when he uses a word like that? Well, we have been sanctified in the past in that we have been set apart for the one who redeemed us. Hebrews 2.11 actually acknowledges this. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. So that sanctification is in the past. It's also in our present. It's in the present work of sanctification might be a word that you hear used. That is how we are growing from one degree of glory to another. And you know what's funny about our one degree of glory to another is they don't always line up. And when they don't line up, they kind of cause friction. But it says that the people sitting around you right now are sanctified in the past and they are presently being sanctified. They are being changed by the power of the gospel. 2 Corinthians 7.1 says this, Since we have these promises, beloved, oh, don't miss that word. The individuals are dear to the heart of God. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. He's telling us that we get to participate in this work of sanctification in the present. So we have a past sanctification that is Christ's work. We have a present participation in sanctification. And we have a future of sanctification, which looks like our glorification in eternity. 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. So they are sanctified in Christ Jesus. He also says this. He says that they are called to be saints. This is a person who is sanctified, a, a holy or godly person, one eminent for piety and virtue. One of what might be called the blessed of heaven. We see that definition in Webster's 1828 dictionary. So they're called to be saints. They're also gathered individuals who call on the name of the Lord. And I've explained how in verse 2, Paul uses the phrase both their Lord and ours because of some of the Roman-oriented members that would have been there. Kings like Augustus would have been given the title of Lord But this opening statement is actually a direct challenge to a cult that was popular in Rome. It was actually known as the cult of Rome, the Roman imperial cult. And here's what Paul's point is in the midst of all of that. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. You can only worship Christ as Lord. You can only worship Christ as Lord. You are to put him first in your heart and in your mind. So this isn't just written to Corinth. This isn't just written to Metro Life Church today. This is written to you and to me. It's calling that our thoughts would align with the gospel. And you may recognize we're, we're kind of laying the foundation for the series to come as we go through this. In the weeks ahead, beginning with 
what would be commonly known as Pentecost Sunday, we're going to actually begin to look at more specifically the Spirit-filled church. What does it look like to be a Spirit-filled church? And we're going to take the summer months to just spend some time slowly working through 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. So we're going to kind of take an overview look, and then we're going to dig into some specific areas that I believe the Lord has some things for us as a church. But why is it that we want to understand what it is that's available to us as believers? Why is that important for us? What's important for us because when we begin to understand what it is that God has provided for us, we begin to understand how it is that we can live to bring him glory. We begin to understand how it is that we can live to bring him glory. And so let's look at the next section as we see Paul's prayer for the church. He's, he's going to give, give thanks for them, and he's going to give thanks for the faithfulness of God. I give thanks to my God, it says in 1 Corinthians 1.4, always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So He speaks of the grace of God given to you. This is God's unmerited favor on us. It's crucial to understand as we continue to look through this book. Even study the gifts of grace or what would be known as the charismatic gifts over the summer. It all begins and ends in the unmerited favor, the grace of God that amazingly, that that astoundingly has been given to you and to me. It all flows from that. And it it says this, that we are enriched through these gifts in every way. I don't know if you would know this, but when you buy a loaf of bread, you may see on the label that it has been enriched or fortified. Actually, a lot of bread today needs to be enriched or fortified after the milling process. And in the same way, as we are transformed through the gospel, we are enriched with spiritual gifts. Our our lives are sanctified, they're fortified so that they can glorify the one who is working in us and through us. I, I don't want to move too quickly from this part. How often do we think about the enrichment of God's work in our lives? I mean, what what do we bring? We bring What needs to change? The word enriched and the thoughts about wheat having nutrients stripped away has has had me thinking about this application to our gathering today. What is it that Christ does for us when he applies his blood and saving power to our heavenly records? He reconciles those accounts by his actions to be sure. But our sin, our our former motivations for doing things, what what might be called our natural ways of thinking, they are all stripped away. And so when we think about enrichment, let's not think about it like bread. I know I'm the one that used the illustration. Let's think of it as beloved. 
those old ways of thinking, those motivations are stripped away. And what we are enriched with is a righteous robe provided by Jesus. Our motivation for serving others springs forth now from the realization of our Savior's resurrection. Our old ways of thinking have been transformed. We have been provided the mind of Christ, we're told in Scripture. So we are enriched in every way, in speech and in knowledge. You know, just as a reminder, it was oratory skills that were a real highlight in the culture at the time. We're not lacking in any gift. We're not lacking in knowledge. So tell others about His good work. Testify of His goodness. We're not lacking in any gift. We're not, we're not under-emphasizing knowledge. We're not saying we disconnect our brains in any type of way, but we're not over-emphasizing it either, as if this gnosis or this knowledge leads to some form of Gnosticism that says, I have a special secret knowledge. No, you have been enriched in every way, in speech and in knowledge. You can proclaim His glory through your life. It's what we're being told here. Next, Paul thanks God for the guarantee that God gave the Corinthian believers. He reminds them of their eternal security. Verse 8 says this, Who will sustain you? He's talking about the Lord. Who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Guiltless on the day of the Lord. You know, Romans 8.1 reminds us that for those who are in Christ Jesus there will be no condemnation on the day we stand before the throne. The question is this. Will that be a throne of grace for those who are in Christ Jesus? Will that be a throne of judgment for those who deny Jesus' work on their behalf? Let me ask you this. Which will it be for you? What do you call on in the midst of this? See, for those who are in Christ, not only will we be guiltless, but this will also be sustained on our behalf. Some translations use the word confirm. It basically just means this. That it is sure. That it is secure. It's divinely stable. It's divinely true. Why? Because God is faithful, we continue to read in verse 9. By whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. God is faithful. That means he's reliable. He's trustworthy. He is ever true to his promise. He can be depended on. And we are saved because God wants it that way. And we stay saved because he doesn't change his mind about our position. That position has been secured by his own son's blood, Jesus Christ. And because of this truth, we experience fellowship with him. I'm grateful for Ray Stedman. This next section is from him. He says this. This is a, a key verse for us to understand in 1 Corinthians. The rest of the letter centers around it. <clears throat> They had not understood the implications of their calling and the relationship that they personally and individually had with Jesus Christ himself. And I wonder if we find ourselves in the same place today. Where we've settled in or where we're trying to 
stir up new experiences as if we can make those manifest in our own strength, in our own emotions. No, fellowship with Christ is the work of the Holy Spirit. It's His task to take the things of Christ and make them known to us, to make the person of Jesus vivid and real in our daily experience. Christ made real to the heart, enabling Him to satisfy the thirsts of the soul. Christ providing the power that it takes to do and meet the demands of both the law and the love of God. Fellowship with Christ is not only direction in what to do, but it is dynamic because it is how to do it. What the church is called to in an understanding of the presence of Christ in the human heart, to supply to it that dynamic, that sense of adventure, that innovative spirit that opens doors in usual and in unanticipated ways that lends adventure color to life. You and I were called into the fellowship of his son. This word is koinonia. means that we have everything in common. We are in partnership with him. Your interests are his interests. Your mind and thoughts, your body and purity, your spirit and graciousness. His interests are yours, His glory and the wonder of His person, the majesty and the greatness of His power. Alan Redpath says this, All He has is at your disposal now, and His desire is that you should have all that He is at at your disposal, now and always. 